Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 165, The iPad's First Decade. Hi, I'm Neil. Last month marked the 10th anniversary of Apple unveiling the iPad. This is a product category that has been polarizing in the Apple community. You have some people who aren't quite happy with where the iPad has been heading. Nevertheless, I was surprised at how this anniversary took on a somber feel. The most common reaction in tech circles ended up being sadness and disappointment for what the iPad had failed to become. While some are convinced that the iPad is in some way a victim of neglect, mismanagement, or even worse, I think such feelings are misplaced. We don't need to feel bad for the iPad. In this episode, we're going to talk about why I think that. We're going to recap the iPad's first decade. And we're going to talk about why there is such a range of opinion regarding this product. Ultimately, I think it comes down to different perspectives. And there's one perspective that people really haven't been talking about. We're going to focus on that today. Apple unveiled the iPad on January 27th, 2010. To mark the 10th anniversary of the unveiling, there were a few publications that had articles recapping the iPad's first decade. The thing is, the reactions were complicated, <laughs> to put it gently. In this week's article over at AboveAvalon.com titled, Don't Feel Bad for the iPad, I highlighted two articles that jumped out at me. One was from John Gruber over at Daring Fireball. The other was from Ben Thompson over at Stratechery. I'll include links to the two articles in this episode's show notes. I'm not going to go over the full articles, but I did want to pick out a few paragraphs because I think that's going to help our discussion going forward. Here's John Gruber in an article titled, The iPad Awkwardly Turns 10. Quote, Jobs' onstage pitch was exactly right. The iPad was a new class of device sitting between a phone and a laptop. To succeed, it needed not only to be better at some things than either a phone or a laptop, it needed to be much better. It was. And is. Ten years later, though, I don't think the iPad has come close to living up to its potential. By the time the Mac turned 10, it had redefined multiple industries. In 1984, almost no graphic designers or illustrators were using computers for work. By 1994, almost all graphic designers and illustrators were using computers for work. The Mac was a revolution. The iPhone was a revolution. The iPad has been a spectacular success, and to tens of millions, it is a beloved part of their daily lives. But it has, to date, fallen short of revolutionary. End quote. Again, that is from John Gruber over at Daring Fireball. Ben Thompson over at Stratechery agreed with Gruber's post and went further in his own article titled, The Tragic iPad. And I'm going to jump around a little bit, but here's Ben. Quote, the truth is that the long-term sustainable source of innovation on the iPad should have come from third-party developers. 
By the time the Mac turned 10, Apple was a $2 billion company, while Adobe was worth $1 billion. There are, needless to say, no companies built on the iPad that are worth anything approaching $1 billion in $2020, much less in $1994, even as the total addressable market has exploded. And one big reason is that $4.99 price point. Apple set the standard that highly complex, innovative software that was only possible in the iPad could only ever earn 5 bucks from a customer forever. Updates, of course, were free. End quote. In addition to those two blog posts, there were tweets about the iPad's 10th anniversary. There were lots of tweets. <laughs> I included two tweets. There were a lot more, but I figured these two were pretty symbolic of what was out there. Here's a tweet from Ricardo Mori. Quote, what I believe is that the iPad and its OS could have been so much more than a reinvention of the computing wheel adapted for a touch interface, end quote. And here's Lauren Brichter, quote, the App Store is what killed the iPad, end quote. There was no shortage of writers, pundits, and industry analysts using the iPad's 10th anniversary to give eulogies for the product in terms of its inability to be revolutionary, grab momentum, or even just meet expectations. There were other perspectives out there. A handful of people talked highly of the iPad on its anniversary. However, those perspectives were few and far between, and the articles that were published, they included huge disclaimers and qualifiers. Here's O. Malik in an article titled, iPad at 10, an affair forever. Quote, a decade after its introduction, I think the iPad is still an underappreciated step in the storied history of computing. If anything, it has been let down by the limited imagination of application developers who have failed to harness the capabilities of this device. End quote. And I would say that opinion seems to be pretty widespread. Most of the people who talk highly of the iPad, they include something like that, in which there's something about developers that are not taking advantage of this. That's what's holding the iPad back. The hardware, though, it is on another level. That's, that's something that I hear a lot of. Before we go any further, I did want to say that it's healthy. It's a good thing that you have people sharing opinions and perspectives on Apple products like the iPad. It shows that people care. There are companies out there with products that they really wish people would be actually debating about. Instead, those products get ignored. It shows that there is an ecosystem here. People care about these products. I also think it's healthy that we get different opinions the one thing I have a problem with is when reporting, journalism, is mixed with opinion, and it's everywhere these days. I think it's a huge problem. It's a disservice to readers, listeners, watchers. But so far, everything we've talked about in this episode is different. These are not reporters talking about the iPad. They're writers. They're people online tweeting about it. And in my opinion, it's okay to come out with different opinions and comments about something. 
I do think one's argument is strengthened if you actually have reasons supporting your view. And in many times, that's not the case. You have people who are kind of making pretty weak arguments, but nevertheless, it's okay to have different perspectives, different opinions out there. So I did want to point that out. And we're not going to necessarily pick apart all of these opinions in this episode. I don't see there's value in doing that. We're going to talk about the main points, though. This idea that the iPad is not revolutionary. The idea that the iPad hasn't led to all of these other industries. There's something to say about all that. When it comes to the iPad at 10 years old, I hold a very different view than what we just talked about in terms of John Gruber, Ben Thompson, a lot of these tweets. In recapping the 2010s, I went so far as to position the iPad as one of the two most important tech products of the decade, the other one being iPhone. The iPad has become ubiquitous in various industries and sectors, and in the process, it has altered modern computing. How can there be such a dramatic difference in opinion when it comes to iPad? I think the answer is different perspectives. To see how important perspective becomes in this discussion, we need to go back to the iPad unveiling in January 2010. A closer look at that unveiling reveals it wasn't that Steve Jobs successfully made the sales pitch for a new product category. Instead, Steve successfully sold consumers on a problem they weren't even aware they faced. A few daily tasks like email, web browsing, video watching, and mobile games could be better handled on a large piece of glass with multi-touch than on a small piece of glass with multi-touch, known as iPhones at the time, or a non-multi-touch device like MacBooks. Such juxtaposition elevated the iPad at the expense of the iPhone and Mac. The iPhone was positioned as a tiny device designed for portability, while the Mac was positioned as a heavy beast blown out of the water by iPad when it comes to handling simple tasks. Consumers agreed with Steve that there was indeed a problem and that the iPad was a genuine solution to the problem. The iPad became Apple's best-selling product out of the gate, with the company selling 22 million devices in just the first 12 months. Ten years later, it is difficult to envision a new Apple product that will be able to grab that kind of adoption so quickly. What was behind that? I think it was that Steve didn't just sell a new product category. Steve sold a problem. And what that meant was that consumers had that desire, that urge to solve a problem versus just figuring, okay, yeah, I'm interested in a new product category. Let me try it out. In going through all of the eulogies for the iPad at 10 years old, one theme was this idea of iPad not living up to its expectations. Most people are going around saying it's a successful product. We can look at sales, look at revenue, look at the number of new users entering the iPad install base. It's very difficult. It's impossible, really, <laughs> to say that the iPad 
has flopped or is dead. So very few people are saying that. Instead, people are saying, well, the iPad could have been so much better. It could have been so much larger. Could have been a revolution. It didn't meet my early expectations. There's a big issue with that perspective, with that stance. The iPad doesn't operate in a vacuum. Apple sells other products. And in the tech industry, 10 years is a very long time. And so if we're looking at the iPad in 2010, and we have certain expectations of that product, you can't just then look at the iPad 2020 and say, well, wait, my expectations weren't met. You have to take a look at the other products in Apple's product line. What changed? What was influenced by the iPad? What was impacted by the iPad and vice versa? And when you do that, I think you see a completely different viewpoint of this. The situation is nothing like what a lot of people are saying. In January 2010, the iPhone was more of an idea and a promise than anything else. When the iPad was unveiled, there were only about 30 million people using an iPhone. Apple now sells that many iPhones in about two months. Back in 2010, it was the iPad, not the iPhone, that was considered to be the more important product in the future. With such lofty expectations, maybe it shouldn't have come as a surprise that the iPad's 10th anniversary was met with awkwardness, sorrow, and even sadness. As some look at the product as a promise that wasn't kept. However, the early promises found with that initial iPad were met. There was just an unexpected twist. The iPhone ended up carrying the vision found with a larger piece of glass supporting multi-touch that Steve unveiled on stage in January 2010. As iPhone screens became larger over the years, the product leveraged the inspiration found with the initial iPad and turned it into something consumed by nearly a billion people. There are 32 times more iPhone users in the world today than there were when the iPad was unveiled in 2010. The iPhone became an iPad that fit in one's pocket. Based on the iPhone's resounding success, it is fair to say that those early calls that the iPad would turn into something very big ended up being true. Many people inside Apple knew that the iPhone was going to become a big deal. But they didn't think it was going to become as big of a deal as it did. At the same time, I think a lot of people looked at the iPad as potentially being a bigger deal because it had that larger screen. It was that large screen that really contained the potential. Recall when the iPad mini was introduced. There are a lot of people saying, oh, this is the real iPad. Forget that larger iPad. This is it because it's just the right size. I think what people were really saying is they wanted a powerful screen that could also fit in their pocket. And so that iPad mini was one step closer to such a product versus that initial iPad. Meanwhile, at the time, 
the iPhone itself, still pretty small. And so people didn't look at that device as necessarily a computer or a full-fledged computer. They looked at it as, okay, well, this is more of a communication device. As the iPhone screens got larger and larger and larger, everything changed. And then you basically had the iPhone become an iPad that fit in the pocket. And that's where we stand right now. Accordingly, I don't think one can look at the lack of industries or companies created by just the iPad and then say, well, the iPad's potential was never realized or it never materialized. Instead, if you really want to gauge how the iPad's potential ended up, you got to look at the iPhone. And when you do, you see entire industries being started because of the iPhone, because of the power found with multi-touch on a larger piece of glass. Instead of raising the white flag and letting the iPad set sail into the sunset after being replaced by larger screen iPhones, Apple pivoted the product category to accomplish two things. One, serve as a content creation machine. We have things like Apple Pencil for drawing. We have keyboard accessories for typing. And two, represent a low-cost entry point into the Apple ecosystem. The iPad has a starting price of $329. One thing that I wanted to point out has to do with content creation and this idea of keyboard accessories for the iPad. Very often when people in tech talk about content creation, they seem to only refer to things like making movies, making music, doing photography, or something like that, something in that related field. But when you look at something like Above Avalon, writing is a form of content creation. And for people who grew up with dedicated keyboards like laptops and desktops, they may still need a dedicated keyboard to be efficient with creating that kind of content, to be able to write long papers, daily emails, whatever they do. Now that could be different if you grew up on iPhones, if you grew up with multi-touch, there are high schoolers who type papers using just their iPhones. And we'll talk a little bit about this in a couple minutes. Everyone's different. And that's one thing that I don't think a lot of people really focus on is how this idea of work and content creation, it's subjective. It depends on the person and their workflows and their experience and their perspective. When you look at the two changes that are taking place with the iPad, serve as a content creation machine and represent a low-cost entry point to the Apple ecosystem, they've given the iPad a very successful second chapter. Unit sales have stabilized at $45 million per year. There are about 20 million new people entering the iPad install base each year. Out of those two figures, that new user growth is more interesting and probably more important going forward because you see a product category with momentum. Again, some people may look at this and just brush it off. I don't think you can do that. <laughs> I think you have to take a look at why people are entering the iPad install base for the first time. To these people, the iPad is not some kind of compromised machine. It is not a machine that is suffering from 
high expectations. Instead, it is a machine that connects with them in some way. It's a machine that they're using to improve their lives. That matters. When we take a look at the total number of people that are using the iPad in some capacity, my estimate is it's at least 350 million people. And the iPad is shaping industries far more than some people are giving the product credit for. When you consider the iPad's widespread adoption and influence in enterprise settings, I think it's very fair to say that the iPad has indirectly added billions of dollars of market cap to companies ranging from Slack and Microsoft to Square. I don't hear anyone mentioning that. I don't think anyone's ever mentioned that. It's interesting. The iPad has become almost like a line in the sand between those who grew up on laptops and desktops and those who never felt comfortable with such devices. You have some people almost giving threats that the iPad has to do this or has to become like this in order for them to use it. And on the other hand, you have people saying, well, if the iPad moves down that path, I'm going away. I'm moving to something else. It's a fascinating situation, and it's a tough one for Apple because Apple finds itself walking a thin line when it comes to adding functionality to the iPad for some users while keeping the device's simplicity and intuitiveness front and center for other users. Multitasking is a great example of this battle. Some Mac users are not pleased with Apple's implementation of multitasking on the iPad. These users find multitasking on an iPad to be a mental exercise. Meanwhile, a portion of iPad users have no need or desire for multitasking on an iPad. These users are then likely to view multitasking on a laptop or desktop as not intuitive. Last summer, when I went on a brief vacation, I went a number of days, it was almost a week, with no laptop or desktop. For Above Avalon, I use a desktop most days. I use it to write the daily updates, weekly articles. Also, I use it to record this podcast. I also use a laptop from time to time as well. And so going so long with no laptop or desktop usage, it did some pretty interesting things to my perception about computing and intuitiveness. Because when I returned to a laptop or desktop, it was as if I had to take a step back to get used to it. My brain had to be rewired to handle something that really did feel less intuitive. And that plays a role in how I think about this multitasking debate. Apple doesn't sell perfect products. There will always be room for improvement, refinement, and new thinking. In some ways, the lack of perfection is what serves as motivation for Apple to keep pushing. When defining the problems now facing the iPad, my criticism is a bit unconventional. The iPad's primary problem is that it is viewed by some as needing to be a laptop replacement in order to have any value. That is an unrealistic viewpoint. 
And it's resulted in a type of expectational debt being placed on the device. The iPad is expected to become more like the Mac and Mac OS over time. That is problematic. The iPad is not a laptop replacement. Mac OS should not be positioned as inspiration for where to bring the iPad or iPad OS. This isn't meant to belittle Mac OS. Instead, touch-based computing has blurred the line between consumer and professional devices. And so when we debate content consumption versus content creation and this broader definition of work, there is a habit in tech circles to not consider how such terms have dramatically different meanings for hundreds of millions of people. The iPad does not have to become like the Mac in order for people to get work done. The iPad has become a different kind of product, and it should be allowed to stand apart from the iPhone without being forced to replace macOS. That's why there are things like iPadOS and Apple Pencil support. So returning to this idea of multitasking on an iPad, instead of asking how best to handle multitasking, I think a better question is to wonder what multitasking should even mean on an iPad. It feels like a lot of people wanted to go down the road of what's available on the Mac. And that's concerning. I think that's the type of scenario where the iPad starts to lose some of its potential. Apple's product strategy is to push all of its major product categories forward at the same time. That's different than, say, pushing the iPhone forward and just trying to have the iPad and Mac come along for the ride. Positioning the iPad as a content creation platform for the masses, designed to handle some tasks given to laptops and desktops while also handling completely new tasks, is a winning strategy. And I think when we're looking at what is really intriguing, it's that last part, handling completely new tasks. We see the same thing with things like wearables. They're designed to handle tasks that we give to smartphones and iPads, but they're also given the opportunity and they're designed to handle completely new tasks. This dynamic is so important for a product like the iPad because it allows it to be itself while not forcing the iPad into a corner in order to satisfy certain segments of the Apple install base. There's no reason to design the iPad so that it handles every single task that we give to the laptop or desktop, because I think doing that is going to take away the iPad's ability to handle completely new tasks. And it's those new tasks that play a part in making technology more personal. A lot has changed during the iPad's first 10 years. Some may be disappointed with how the iPad has evolved even to the point of thinking Apple lost a great opportunity. However, I wouldn't feel bad for a device that revealed the iPhone's true potential and then became a different kind of content creation tool now used by more than 350 million people. That's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoyed the analysis and perspective found in this podcast episode and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com and you want more of it throughout the week, I think you would be interested in becoming an Above Avalon member. 
The cornerstone of Above Avalon membership is access to my exclusive daily updates about Apple. These updates are emails. They're sent directly into your inbox each day. Each one is about 2,000 words and typically covers three stories. If it is of interest to Apple, it is something I pay attention to in the daily updates. I will talk about everything from my perspective and observations on current news and Apple competitors. I'll talk about Apple business and strategy, my financial estimates for Apple, and of course, full coverage of Apple earnings, product events, and keynotes. The updates go out to a membership base that includes a diverse range of backgrounds and occupations. Readers include Silicon Valley executives and investors, the largest Apple shareholders, the leading Apple journalists in the business, people who are in college, high school, people who may be entering the workforce, and people who have already left the workforce. Along with receiving the daily updates directly via email, members can also be notified when new daily updates are published via RSS and Twitter. And for those of you who may not want a daily email, I do offer a consolidated version of the daily updates in one weekly email that is typically sent out on Saturdays. It is a very long email, but for some people, they prefer having it all in one spot. So that option is available. To receive the daily updates, all you have to do is become an Above Avalon member. So head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. Apple Pay is accepted. Memberships are intended and designed for a single user. So to purchase and manage multiple memberships for your team or company, group memberships are available. And you can also gift memberships to someone. While the daily updates are the cornerstone of Above Avalon membership, there are additional member privileges and benefits. For example, members have access to Above Avalon reports, my working Apple earnings model, email priority. There is an archive, so you can go back and read previously sent material. There's a form, so you can chat with other Above Avalon members. You also receive the weekly Above Avalon article via email. That feature is only available to members. Above Avalon members play an active role in supporting Above Avalon as an independent source of Apple analysis. I'm proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by its members. So if you're currently an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you're planning on becoming an Above Avalon member, Thank you in advance. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Bye.